0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that through it we can be brought to trust Jesus uh, for eternal life. And that by its work in our lives we can be equipped to live for Jesus. Our Father, we pray uh, that we would know the powerful work of your word in our lives now, turning us to you and changing us to live for you. And help me to speak your word faithfully and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When in 2019, I'm going to invite you to spend several months of the year looking at a book whose major portions were written around 1500 to 1400 BC. That's about 3,500 years ago looking at it not to learn ancient history but to hear your God speak to you. I expect some justification is needed. Why spend time in a Christian church teaching and hearing the fifth book of the Jewish Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy? Well, three reasons which I hope are compelling enough for you to not only pay attention on Sundays but to diligently read and study the book yourself. Firstly, Deuteronomy is part of the Bible of Jesus and his apostles. It guided their thinking about God and his work and what it was to live as one of his people. Uh, There are some references uh, there in the handout. and There you see, if you look them up, that Jesus, for example, as the true Israelite, quoted Deuteronomy in the wilderness to silence the temptations of the devil. Paul turned to Deuteronomy to bring out the nearness of salvation through faith in Jesus to us. The author of Hebrews, to give comfort and assurance to those persevering in their own journey to the heavenly city through trusting Jesus. Secondly, as part of the Bible of Jesus and his apostles, Deuteronomy is included in the scriptures, those sacred writings that the apostle assures us come from God and will help us know what it is to trust Jesus for salvation and will equip us to be complete, ready for every good work as his follower. As we read and hear Deuteronomy we should expect to grow in our understanding of Jesus and to be taught, rebuked, corrected and trained in the life pleasing to God. For these scriptures as Paul says in Romans 15 were written for us. And so you should come expectantly to this portion of God's word. And thirdly, the content of Deuteronomy should make us keen to study it. For even though the Greek name Deuteronomy means a second law, this book is all about grace. It's about being saved by God's grace, having your hope in God's grace, and how to live as God's people in response to God's gracious initiative in saving us how to live so that we enjoy and prosper in a relationship with the living God by grace. Grace is the Christian experience of God. It's the heartbeat of our relationship with God through Christ as you heard in Ephesians. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith in Jesus. And so understanding grace better and how to live as those saved by grace can only enrich our lives as followers of Jesus. Hopefully as we go through Deuteronomy you'll actually experience for yourselves the fulfilment of the promise of God about the prophet of studying his word. And that will remove any doubt from your mind about the wisdom of looking at Deuteronomy. And if you're sitting amongst us and you know you're not yet a believer in Jesus, well understanding Deuteronomy will give you insight into the understanding of God that shaped Jesus and his society and it will, hopefully, address many of the criticisms of the God of, old, of the Old Testament, for example, say, the place of violence in the conquest of Canaan, uh, many of the criticisms of the God of the Old Testament that are common in our society, and also address misunderstandings of how Christians use the Old Testament. In fact, Deuteronomy could introduce you to the true God who is both just and gracious. Well, Moses starts the book by setting the scene uh, for the delivery of this series of speeches that makes up Deuteronomy. In verses 1 to 5, he gives us the who, the where, the what and the when of the book. And then in verses 6 to 19, he places the story of Israel's journey to the border of the Promised Land firmly within the promises God has given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Promises that are foundational not just to the first five books of the Bible, not just to Israel's history, but to the coming of Christ and the salvation of the world through Christ. Deuteronomy is part of the big story of God redeeming the world. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. These are the words spoken by Moses. That's the who. This is the Moses God had sent to Pharaoh to bring his people out of Egypt the Moses who had guided them through the wilderness who had interceded for them who had brought down from the mountain the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God but they are not just Moses' words verse 3 Moses speaks according to all that the Lord had given him commandment had given him in commandment to them it's the Lord the God who had rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and entered into covenant. That is into a committed relationship with the people as their God who is now speaking through Moses. And Moses, it says, is speaking to all Israel. Now that's a phrase that doesn't just include all the Israelites who were alive at that time. Israel in Deuteronomy is the people, the people who continue over time, generation after generation. The Lord is addressing his people in every generation in Deuteronomy, as we'll see as we go through the book. In fact, whether you were included in Israel, the people of God, depended on your response to God's word given in Deuteronomy. And Moses is making these speeches in a very significant place and time. Where is he speaking? Well, it says beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazeroth, and Disahab. Or verse 5, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab. The description of the location brings home both the faithfulness of God and the failure of the people. And here is yet another useless map to add to your record of slides that I have shown you. An encouragement to look at the map at the back of your Bible or even to go online and and find it. Uh, But where are the people? Well, they're not yet in the Promised Land, but they're actually on the very border of it. On this map, it's the top right-hand corner, right at the top, the plains of Moab above the Dead Sea on the east side of the River Jordan. But that is also, it says kind of between, but it can actually mean over against the places listed in, listed in verse 1. Now, they're hard to locate precisely, but they are thought to be locations on the west side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Locations that are actually you know, up on that red dot, following the, arrow, following the arrow to a place called Kadesh Barnea up there. All right. uh, that is, there are places on a more direct route into the promised land the route that does run through Kadesh Barnea and up into Beersheba and Hebron. And so this description of place tells you that God has at last got the people of Israel to the border of the promised land, ready to fulfil his promise to them to give them the land. But the fact that they are where they are, right up on the right-hand corner of our map, on the east side, not on the west side, using the direct land route, is actually a reminder of the people's failure. The failure you heard Moses speaking of in the second half of our reading from Deuteronomy. Now that sense of God's faithfulness and the people's failure is also caught up in the time note. See verse 2, it says, It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, down there Mount Sinai, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea in the 40th year. On the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people. So you heard that verse 2, only 11 days from Horeb, which in Deuteronomy is the name for Mount Sinai, where God had met with his people after they come out from Egypt. Only 11 days from there, up to Kadesh Barnea, <coughs> from where they could have entered the Promised Land. They could have walked straight up into the middle of it. Now, it took only three months for the people to get from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And they are only at Mount Sinai for about a year. But first three, it is now forty years since they've left Egypt. And so you are meant to put those numbers together. Eleven days, forty years. What's gone wrong? Did Moses have the map upside down? What you know, what's been going on? Now Moses is about to tell us. But 40 years was the time God said that the people would wander in the wilderness because of their sin. See, so there's actually a note of encouragement as well as a reminder of sin here because it's saying God had kept his word. And that's an encouragement for the people now to believe that God would keep on keeping his word in giving them the land. And they'd already started, in a sense, to experience the fulfilment of that gift in part because we read that, This speech is made after the defeat of Sion and Og, these Amorite kings east of the Jordan, and we'll hear more about that next week. So that's, in a sense, the who, the where, and the when, the what. Well, here on the border of the land, having arrived at the time of God's choosing, having started to experience the fulfilment of God's promise despite their sin, Moses pauses to address the people with, two major speeches. Those speeches are chapters 1 to 4 and then 5 to 28 and then a series of smaller speeches to the end of the book. And this is described in verse 5 as Moses undertaking to explain this law. Now, while there's quite a lot of commandment and statute in what follows in Deuteronomy, law is probably not the best translation. It's Moses undertook to explain this Torah. Now, Torah, as if you've got Jewish friends, you'll know that's the way they describe the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And it's best understood not so much as law as instruction and exhortation. So Moses is going to give authoritative instruction, a prophetic word from the Lord that contains history, promises, encouragement, reminiscence, as well as command. And this Torah will give the content of their relationship with their gracious Saviour, for the generations to come. Now this instruction starts with Moses recollecting God ordering the departure of the people from Mount Sinai almost 39 years ago. Verse 6, The Lord God said, Lord our God said to us in horror, You have stayed here long enough. Turn, take your journey. And then down verse 8, See I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. And so leaving Mount Sinai was the start of the journey to the fulfilment of the promise of God to their forefathers to give them the land of Canaan. They leave Sinai at God's command, guided by his promise to the fulfilment of that promise. And now what we'll see is that they are travelling as people who have already started to experience the fulfilment of the promises of God to their forefathers. Repeated in a number of places in Genesis, I've just got Genesis uh, 17, he said. I thought I had Genesis 17 there. I definitely don't. Uh, This is something you're also getting used to, the missing slide. You can look up Genesis 17. uh, But in Genesis uh, 17, for example, uh, God said that he would make Abraham a great nation, multiplying his descendants. So basically four things God promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That he'd make them a great nation, multiplying their descendants. That he would enter into a relationship with his descendants to be their God and that they would be his people. Thirdly, that he would give them the land of Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey. And yes, there was a fourth element to that promise which should never be lost sight of, and that is that in Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, the people have already and are experiencing the fulfilment of that promise. Verse 9. Verses 9 to 19, as you are listening, it could sound a little like an interruption to the start of the journey. You know, full of practical wisdom about leadership and the principle of delegation and that kind of stuff. But actually there is more to verses 9 to 19. Those verses emphasise the faithfulness of God and the structuring of the life of God's people for the journey. We see that in that the people, verse 10, are already a great nation. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now that's language that recalls what God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15. Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. God has kept his promise and multiplied the people in Egypt. And we see in verses 9 to 19 that they are now God's people. God has kept his promise of bringing them into relationship with himself. And so verse 16 The standard of judgment, where they're told to judge righteously, is the covenant law given to Moses at Sinai, the commands of God, where, well, he says, verse 18, I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. And the judges are to operate, verse 17, without fear, knowing that the justice they are administering is God's. God is seen as king amongst his people. And he's the ultimate authority who will enforce righteous judgment of his righteous commands. And more as we see here, verse 15, the organisation is not just judicial but military. The men appointed are spoken of as commanders. This is the structure of the army of Israel on the move with God in their midst. The structure we see in numbers. So the people are setting out from Mount Sinai as the people of God. The people whom God has already blessed and entered into relationship with in faithfulness to the promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the people who are now directed by God to go and take possession of the land God has promised them. They have experienced God's faithfulness and they travel with God, which makes what Moses recounts next so disappointing. And so shocking. They come to the border of the land and they fail to enter. It's a tragic story. So the Lord, verses 20 to 21, says, go up, take possession. Don't fear or be dismayed. Go up. It's pretty clear, isn't it, what God wants them to do. So they send out spies. And the summary of the spies is that actually God's been truthful. This land is no dud. It's a good land as the Lord said it would be. But then they do exactly the opposite of what God, their God, had commanded them. Verse 26, they would not go up. They rebelled, rejected God as their king. Worse, in their faithless fear, they start to misrepresent God. Verse 27, they murmured in their tents and said, because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. You see, they misrepresent God's motive. He hates us and his intention. He intends not to give us a good land. He intends to destroy us. Now think, how easy is it for us to do that, to do exactly what they've done? when we think that God has asked something of us that's too hard. You know, when Jesus asks us to say to give up that relationship with that non-Christian, which is unhelpful, or to forgive that person who has hurt us and repented, or to keep our word where it will cost us, or even just to pay our tax. And we hear what Jesus says and we think, if I did what he said it would ruin me. It would break my heart. Then we start to say, Jesus wants to ruin me. He doesn't want my happiness. He wants my unhappiness. And I can't do it. God really doesn't care. Oh, if he really loved me, he wouldn't ask that of me. Have you ever heard those words? Perhaps spoken in your own heart. And they did think that what God was asking of them was just too hard. Verse 28 Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller, the cities are great and fortified, the sons of Anak are there. You know, they're saying this is too hard, the people are stronger, where extra weight and height gave significant advantage in the warfare of the day. They're better organised. They've got sophisticated cities with defences, even the Anakim, of whom you'll hear more next week. Giants of fabled strength. Now Moses pleaded with them not to give way to fear. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Moses reminds them that they've already experienced the Lord fighting for them in Egypt, destroying the much more formidable army of Egypt. And they'd experienced his fatherly care in the wilderness. He had carried them like a father carries his son. How could they think that he hated them? How could they think that he did not love them? They'd experienced his provision, protection and guidance in their journey but, verse 32, they would not believe. That was their core problem. They wouldn't trust God who had shown them his love and power. And actually isn't that the core problem in all our disobedience of Jesus? It's our unbelief. But our faithless fear is even less justified, isn't it? I mean, when we disobey Jesus, we are not trusting the love of God. We're not trusting the love of the Father who gave his son for us, or the love of the Son of going and going to the cross for us. And we're not trusting in His power, the one who has all authority, power even over death. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to recognise that every knowing disobedience of Jesus is actually a rejection of the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. And we should repent of that urgently, for such rebellion was and is disastrous. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb. Because he has wholly followed the law. The law was angered by their rebellion and their refusal to trust him. Now, anger, and speaking of anger, is unfashionable, isn't it? Because anger suggests, you know, loss of control and impotent frustration. But God's anger is just and measured. You see, anger conveys the intensity of God's rejection of their behaviour and his determination to restore what is right. And his anger is expressed in carrying out his judgments and that won't subside until those judgments are executed. Because of their faithlessness, not one of them would enter the land. Their fear realised their fears. Not one would enter the land except Caleb. Everyone else would not obtain the promise. Only the one who was wholehearted in following the Lord would possess the promise. For such total commitment to the Lord is what the Lord requires and deserves then and now. That's true, isn't it? Think of Jesus' call. He expects that wholehearted obedience. He calls us to love him above all. He calls us to deny ourselves daily, to take our cross and follow him. That is to love him above our own lives. He expects us to follow him wholly. Caleb will enter the land, and Joshua will also enter the land, because he'd lead the children of those rebels, those who had not he'd lead those who had not reached an age of moral accountability, who had no knowledge of good and evil, he will lead them into the land of promise. Why? Because even Moses, we heard had been caught up in the consequences of this rebellion. His anger with the people overflowing in the episode at Meribah where he struck the rock instead of speaking to it and failed to honour God with his faith. Well, on hearing the judgment of God, the people were overcome with regret, realised they'd done wrong. They said, we've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. They confessed their sin and seemingly recommitted themselves to the Lord's will. But there was no repentance. You see, doing what God commands only when you want, when you have convinced yourself that it suits you and will be good for you, that's not repentance. Repentance is saying, I was wrong to trust myself and not trust God. And then humbling yourself to say, from now on, God will call the shots, even if it's hard for me. Repentance is saying, it's right that I do what God says, what he commands. You see, only doing what God commands when, well, then that's what you want. That's exactly the opposite of repentance because you're still in charge and you've reduced God's word to merely advisory status, to be followed or not, according to whether you think it will work for you. And their pride is seen in thinking, verse 41, that the conquest would be easy, that they have it in their own power to achieve God's purpose, that they could bring about God's goal by their own efforts. And we still meet that attitude today, don't we? People who think that becoming the righteous person God wants us to be, being, in a sense, confident of being safe, breaking from sin, that's just a matter of turning over a new leaf and working harder. That you can live the life God requires easily without costly commitment to Jesus as Lord, without new birth and the power of the Spirit to put to death sin in our lives and in our hearts. People still have that attitude. But you see, such presumptuous rebellion is disastrous as God warned it would be. Without God in their midst, without God with them, they can't bring about the fulfilment of the promise of God. You and I cannot realise the promises of God to us in any other way than God's way. Their action was just more rebellion more insolence, bringing more death. The attempt to live pleasing to God by your own works, where you decide what pleases God and rely on yourself, that's just more rebellion, more insolence, bringing more death too. Well, here we are, 40 years later, as it were, on the border of the land of promise. And here Moses tells them, reminds them of this miserable tale of faithless failure. And the people Moses was now speaking to knew the truth of all he said, for they were the children of those rebels. They were those who had trudged through the wilderness all those years, watching, well, God's judgment enacted, watching the previous generation die out. They knew it all too well. So why does Moses start his Torah, his explanation of God's authoritative instruction of his people... This way, why start with failure? And he makes it very personal. He doesn't say, oh, remember what that rotten generation of your parents did. Did you notice he uses you throughout, as if they, his audience, were involved in this. He says, you rebelled, you did not believe, you would not listen, you. It was the failure of the nation, the nation of which those he is speaking to on the plains of Moab are now the representatives. Oh, that inclusion will have a flip side. They'll also be spoken to as being included by God in the covenant, addressed by God at Sinai. But he speaks to you. We might have expected Moses to want to give them, you know, a real motivational pep talk at this stage. You know, you're the ones who've made it. You've endured. You've got what it takes. But actually Moses leaves them in no doubt of their unworthiness as a nation to inherit the fulfilment of the promise. That if it had just been left up to them, they would have no hope. And that's a theme he'll return to at the end of the book, chapters 30 on. Now, it seems hard, doesn't it, on them? Hard. But starting with a reminder of failure is good for them and it's good for us today. Yeah, believers in Jesus have received great promises in Jesus. And believing the gospel, we now enjoy fulfilment of some of them, don't we? Forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit, incorporation into the visible church. But we know that the fullness of what is promised awaits us. Yes, we've been promised the resurrection of our bodies, the new heaven and earth, citizenship of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so in a sense, we are like these Israelites, on the border, waiting to cross over into our inheritance and uncertain of when that will be. And Moses, starting with failure, reminds us of three things. Firstly, only God can bring about what he has promised, and without him we can do nothing. Oh, and God will bring about what he's promised his way. We cannot realise God's good purposes for us by ourselves. Oh, many have tried, many have tried to build heaven on earth, their way to complete disaster. All our hope is in trusting our God, listening to him and doing what he says. Starting with disaster reminds us that there's no other way to inherit eternal life than responding to the word of God's son Jesus with the wholehearted faith he calls for. So if we want to make it, we've got to keep trusting him. And secondly, starting with failure, makes God's grace prominent. You see, this record of failure reminds the first hearers that they are only on the border, only coming to the fulfilment of the promise because of God's grace, his free, generous, forgiving kindness to them, not because of any wisdom or virtue or strength they may have. That's right, it's grace from beginning to end, isn't it? It was God who freely, graciously called their forefather Abraham. There was no compulsion or obligation on God to call Abraham. It was God who then graciously made those great promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, whose fulfilment they are looking forward to. Oh, it was God who then graciously rescued Abraham's descendants from Egypt. It was his initiative and power the whole way. Oh, yes, and it was then God who graciously entered into covenant relationship, committed relationship with Abraham's descendants, Israel, at Mount Sinai. And it was God who had pardoned them and not destroyed them completely when they'd rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. Their being on the border was all of grace. God's grace mediated through his prophet Moses. And knowing that is good for them. For their confidence in possessing the land could only rest on God's grace, his continuing gracious commitment to them, not on their own strength or virtue. You see, the land had not become easier to possess in the intervening years, only harder. Here's Moses, again, giving his pep talk. He's a great encourager, Moses. Here you are, Israel, you're to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations, Greater and mightier than you cities great and fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? You think Moses Moses probably wouldn't have done well on the motivational circuit, would he? Right? See, they still face a people strong and mighty, with well defended cities and well organized societies. Without God, as they've already demonstrated, they could not win. And how could they know they could rely on God? Well, it was not because of their goodness or obedience. You read Numbers, it is so plainly imperfect. Now, they could rely on God only because of his grace, experienced in his continuing, generous, faithful love to them imperfect people. Only faith in the gracious, faithful God would give them confidence to go out and take possession of what he had promised. And isn't it good as believers in Jesus for us to hear of God's grace, for God's grace to be made prominent in Deuteronomy 1? Isn't it good for us to keep God's grace, his free kindness to us in Christ, prominent as we look to possess what our God has promised to us. You see, we need to remind ourselves that the gospel says we all start with failure. Isn't that right? We start by confessing that we're sinners, rebels, dead in our sin, as you heard in Ephesians 2. That we are saved by grace, not by our virtue or wisdom. Saved by grace. And of course, none of our following of Jesus has been perfect since that day we first believed, has it? I mean, that's why we remind ourselves of that truth by confessing our sins together when we meet. And if you if you think that's not true of you, if you think since the day you believed you've led a perfect life, well, come and talk to me, and I'll go through Matthew five to seven. You know, you look at a woman with lust in your heart that you yes don't. Right, it's grace from beginning to end, isn't it? It's grace that sent Jesus the Son to die for us. It's grace that called us to trust him in the gospel. It's grace that's convicted us of the truth of the gospel in our hearts. It's grace that's patiently persevered with us, forgiving us and changing us. And it will be grace that will raise us to the new heaven and earth at the last day. Remember what Newton wrote, Amazing Grace? That should have been Israel's anthem, It Is Ours. Remember what he said, it's grace that's brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. If you and I are going to be confident of inheriting what is promised, the resurrection, the new heaven and earth, our confidence must be in God's grace to us in Christ, not in ourselves. And thirdly, this reminder of failure makes the response we must make to God's grace if we're going to come to the resurrection very clear. Because the consequences of faith and faithlessness are very plain in Deuteronomy, aren't they? Only faith in the promise of God, faith in the God who makes the promise, will inherit. It's true for them and it's true for us. Only faith in God's promise to us in Christ, faith in the gracious, saving God, will inherit. Only faith that is real, the faith that repents and obeys. Not the mock faith that masquerades as Christian faith, but it's really only a faith in your own judgment, only doing what seems, well, to make sense to you. No, that's not real faith. No, it's only the faith that repents and obeys. We need to hear that because we are all prone to fear the consequences for ourselves of following Jesus. To fear the consequences of doing what he says. I mean we look into our future don't we sometimes and we anticipate. We see loss of friendship or loneliness in marriage or perhaps never being married. Oh, We we risk alienation from others and workmates. We we fear being exhausted by following Jesus' command to love, of being hurt again where we forgive. We can fear public embarrassment and ridicule and harassment at work. Oh yes, and we can fear failure, a starting and not being able to complete. Well, God reminds us here that only persevering faith that lives that daily life of repentance and faith where we deny ourselves and say yes each day to trusting Jesus and doing what he says, only that persevering faith will inherit. But God gives us good reason in Deuteronomy to keep believing. And he gives good reason for us to turn away from fearful faithlessness, doesn't he? Our faith, trusting God by trusting his son Jesus, is right and it's reasonable. I mean, this is faith in the one who's loved us and rescued us by giving his son for us, who's already forgiven us and included us in his people. Our faith is in one who cares for us and our faith is in one who gives us his spirit who's brought us into a relationship with himself, where we now cry, Abba, Father, in our hearts. We know God as our Father, and we are changed, empowered to live his way by his Spirit. Our faith is in one who has demonstrated His power of, his power over death in the resurrection of Jesus. He has the power to do what he says. He's the one who has promised to be with us always. Promise that nothing will separate us from his love, who knows us and is amongst us. He's the one, well, still the same one we see in Deuteronomy 1, who keeps every word that he promises. And as we know, in being saved in Jesus, he is gracious, rich in mercy. It's right and reasonable to keep trusting God by trusting his son. And so sitting here, you may know the fear of faithful obedience. You might feel that. You might be wrestling with that in your heart. Well, remember the people of Israel. He got them to the prime. He got them to the border of the land, He'll get them in. God will never fail of his promise. Don't be those who give in to fear and fail fail to inherit don't be like them each day remember and give thanks for grace the grace that's kept you going till now and relying on God's grace to you in Christ tread again the path God has said will bring you to what he's promised because what he's promised is so good it's the new heaven and earth where there'll be no pain, no grief, no mourning, no death, every tear, even those you fear you might shed in following Jesus, every tear wiped from your eyes, a body like our Lord's glorious body and rest from struggle. Rely on God's grace to tread again the path God has said will bring you to what he has promised the only way he will bring you to what he's promised. That is, keep your eye on Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him no matter what you fear it might cost you. Live to do what he has said because he lives to do what he has said. And he has promised all who trust his son Life forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would tonight know the encouragement of your word, that we would see that you are faithful, that you never fail in your word and that you will bring your people to what you have promised as they commit themselves to that word, to trusting you and doing what you say. And gracious Father, in the face of our own failure and our fear of failure, please convict us again of the reality of your grace, that you are rich in mercy. You are the God who has freely and generously called us to yourself, called us to follow Jesus, given your Son for us, and who has promised to keep us. We pray, help us to know anew every day your grace and trusting your kindness, your generous love. To each day, take up our cross, listen to our Lord and live in the way he commands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.